Marcus Marcus controls the power and wealth of a vast military and religious empire. Yet one horrific crime threatens to destroy everything in his world. Addled by drugs and grief, Marcus Marcus begins a trans-dimensional journey that will ultimately force him to confront a dark and devastating truth. Chapter 10 The Peninsula I returned directly to the peninsula to mark there the second week of the festival of Fierna and Tajini. For 800 years this little corner of Enfeshka, with its scattering of towns and many ecologies, mountains, moors, meadows, rivers and seashores, had been the personal domain of the concubines who brought pleasure and intrigue to the lives of my ancestors. The good ladies, each in their turn, lived in the palace complex, which even to this day is referred to by locals as the Hoor's House. With its low population and great expanses of parkland, the peninsula is an ideal place for a sage and prince to seek solace and relaxation. Yet most sage and princes chose to reside in Glake and only visited the peninsula when time allowed. I reversed this, making the peninsula my permanent residence. The people here mark my anniversary and the festival of Fierna and Tajini in a more relaxed manner than the inhabitants of Glake. Bunting hung across streets. Brass bands led local parades. Children wore guises and played tricks. Pranks and tomfoolery abounded. Though in deference to events in Glake, clowns and jester costumes were prohibited. Instead, people indulged the silliness of the festival by dressing in bright and grotesque outfits that mocked the wicked and shameful behaviour of, among others, landlords, visible earth heretics and aberrations. I attended the biggest parade in Stone City, which strolled, danced, sang and laughed its way from the market square down to the harbour, where I waited in my royal yacht. I was to give a prize to the best float, but the competition was fierce, and in the end I chose two winners. Wicked landlords stealing from poor tenants featured a monstrously obese man who appeared to be shoving money into his mouth while simultaneously shitting gold ingots from his rear. The landlord also had a whip, which he snapped over the heads of his poor tenants, who must have been very poor indeed, as they wore only the flimsiest of rags, scraps of which fell away over the course of the parade, revealing much of the fine bodies of the young men and women players. The other float was called Triumph in the Former War Zone. One half of the float was filled with about six or seven people, representing aberrations, some with wings, all with two heads or eyes in their bellies, and all sporting antennae and looking suitably evil. Amongst them stalked a ridiculous figure, human, 
but with buck teeth and sticky out ears, who would leap up and shout, There is only one earth, and it's made of mud! Confronting the visible hearth heretic and his aberration allies were half a dozen sage in combat troops, all spruced up and fine-looking, with their chests puffed out and their chins raised in a determined and heroic manner. Toy weapons had also been banned, so the heroic troops used their fists while the aberrations waved twinkly wands. After the prize-giving, and with the harbour still ringing with laughter and festivities, I returned to my yacht and sailed down the coast to Ocean Blessing, a cluster of forty or so cottages strung along a mile of shoreline. Since time immemorial, the cottages had housed the men, women and children who made up the Stone City fishing fleet. It had existed before the Sajans came to power, and the autonomy of this minuscule state was protected by a royal decree that was renewed by every new monarch, including myself. It had its own laws, though no courthouse. Legal disputes were invariably settled by open discussion and the wide expanse of cobblestones that separated the cottages from the sea. As well as being the place to settle disputes, this wide expanse was where the fish were landed, the market held, and births, marriages and deaths proclaimed. It was a relatively prosperous place, thanks to the blessings of the ocean. At least no one suffered want or sickness, yet many never lived to enjoy old age, as the ocean was a power that gave much to the fisher folk, but demanded in recompense a taxation paid in human lives. The names of those lost to the swallowing waves were etched into the cobblestones of the marketplace and the bricks of the cottages. Above each name was the date of an individual's death, followed by the words, Due payment made by. My mother had been born there. Her name was carved into the front step of her former family home, along with the names of her maids and their children. They had not died by drowning. They had died far, far, and far away from these grimly beautiful cottages. She and her little court had been visiting the border between Glake and Narn. Though not married to my father, she went there as his representative and died in the fire-scorched slaughter of a brief border clash. I laid flowers on the doorstep of my mother's former home. I did not go into the cottage though, it contains too many memories for me. Instead, I did what I always do. I silently shook hands with the new king of Ocean Blessing and walked arm in arm with him to the market and inspected the day's catch. Only after I had examined every box of ice-packed fish did I finally speak. 
As the villagers cried out, Welcome home, Your Excellency, welcome home. I congratulated the captain of the trawler that had brought home the biggest catch that day and promised to defend the village's borders. The captain was a short woman wrapped in waterproof gear. Her pale eyes twinkled with pride, but, true to the nature of these people, she merely nodded at my remarks and shook my hand curtly. My visit to Ocean Blessing was not the end of my day's duties. I also paid a surprise call to one of the smallest villages in the foothills of Feshi's Curls, the mountains that separate the peninsula from Glake. My entourage and I were transported there by a royal dirigible, which allowed me plenty of time to relax and look down on the slowly passing landscape of my territory. We arrived in the middle of the afternoon and ate sponge cake with the village's delighted 87 inhabitants. Gath joined me for this visit and seemed as happy and relaxed as the villagers. This was the only engagement she attended with me. My work, she explained, was passing along a paper tray loaded with sugar-coated biscuits. Does not allow for long holidays. I laughed and declared, You need not worry about such things for much longer. I had drunk a glass or three of the local liqueur, a thick and sweet concoction that made me feel invulnerable and immune to any doubt whatsoever. I stood up, but before I could finally make a proposal of marriage, the locals started rushing to their homes. Rainstorm coming in fast, your excellency, explained the toothless mayor, as we rushed into a little tinned roof temple. My much-anticipated proposal was delayed once more. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Marcus Marcus and the Hurting Heart. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Player, Podbean or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy the story, please rate and review it. It helps to get new listeners. And don't forget to tell all your friends, family and ancient enemies about the story. You can chat with me on Twitter at HaveringRab or follow me on Instagram at Celtic Tales Galway. You can also follow me on Facebook.com slash Celtic Tales Rab Fulton. And if you want to know more about my work as a podcaster, storyteller, author, stand-up comic, you can check out Rab Fulton Stories dot Weebly dot com